Today, I want to talk to us about um, two topics. Um, They kind of merge together. And it's evangelism, but it's discipleship. Okay, so first of all, let me just begin to say that evangelism is the heart of the Father. Evangelism is the heart of Christ, and evangelism is the heart of the Holy Spirit. Evangelism is of of Christ's priority. It was his priority here on earth. It wasn't something that was a second thing to him. Why? Because he loved people. He genuinely loved people. He loved people like you. He loved people like me. The Bible says that he's able to be merciful to those who have gone astray or who are ignorant and out of the way. The Bible says in Hebrews I think 3 or chapter 4. The Bible says when he looked upon the multitudes that he had compassion for they were like sheep without a shepherd. He didn't know many of these people. There were too many to know. There were 5,000 at least, not including women and children. And they were hungry for three days. And it says, give them something to eat. He tells his disciples and that required labor. That required them a challenge to them. Because now they're having to figure out. And they're trying to please the master. Thinking in natural terms, how are we going to be able to give them bread? The Lord, of course, had something entirely else in mind. But the point, though, was this. He wanted to meet not only their natural needs, but he wanted to meet their ultimate spiritual need. And that was to provide himself for them and that he was the bread of life. But look at that it is not only the heart of the Father, the heart of Christ and the heart of the Holy Spirit is also the heart of the angels. They too love, they are not given to evangelism, but they fully support evangelistic mission how do i know that the bible says when one sinner comes to repentance all of heaven rejoices not a thousand not not 10 million as great as are the uh, uh, as those numbers are one sinner coming to repentance gives all of heaven an occasion to rejoice so what does that say about the Father's heart toward us. The fact that we walk in the truth. Look at, uh, look at the heart of John the Beloved, the Apostle. In his first letter to the church, he says, no, I think it might be his third letter. He says, no greater joy have I than to see that my children walk in the truth. He says, no greater joy. Now, now that, that's, that's assumed that, first of all, his, his greatest joy for himself is that he himself is in the truth. But in addition to that, it's not mansions, it's not materialism, it's not relationships, it's not a marriage. He says, my greatest joy is to see that my children walk in truth. Oh, how great is that love to be able to look beyond self and look upon a person. Look upon those that have the image of God stamped upon them. And see them and view them as one for whom Christ died. 
I think about that. That Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God, gave all, gave it all for you, for I, for the world. <clears throat> that he gave up his rights. He suffered a humiliating death. He was mocked by the very creatures that his own hands had fashioned and made are now ridiculing him and scorning him and shaming him naked on a cross with physical pain. And yet more than the nails pinning him there, the love of the soon-to-be bride and his, the love for the Father is what ultimately held him there. And so you see how <clears throat> this great act of, on Calvary is the central point, the central message, and the ultimate motivating factor for us to want to also bring in lost people. Also bring in those that are ignorant. Also bring in those that are condemned. Because God does not desire the death of the wicked. The Bible says that he wills for all men to come to repentance. He says, come to the waters, whosoever thirsts. Whosoever thirsts. And so as we seek to provide water for those who are thirsty, we must first ourselves have tasted of that. Right? But I wanted to lay this down to show you that this is the Father's heart. This is the Son's heart. The, the, this is the Holy Spirit's heart. The, this is the heart of the angels. And it should be the heart of the church. And so making it very personal, my question to us is, is that our heart? Is it our heart to see people come to the Lord? To see them pass from death unto life. And so, and if it is, understand that God's heart to see them there is far greater than yours to see them there. But this goes to show us how great of a price that the Lord Jesus has placed upon humanity. You see, the Bible says, the psalmist says, that the soul, the life of a soul is costly. What can be given in exchange for it? And the answer is the only thing that can be given in exchange for it is Christ himself, a perfect, a perfect lamb without blemish. But here, here's the thing. This is where I was talking about how evangelism and discipleship converge. They meet together. In what way? It's the strategy, and I say that not with with the worldly mindset. It was the strategy of Jesus to merge evangelism and discipleship together. Let me just give a quick breakdown of, of discipleship. Um, and you guys well know this. Um, it, it's, it means to be fashioned, in, in, uh, to be discipled is is to first have a disciple who has gone before you to bring you through a process, right? And that, that process involves helping you to learn what Jesus taught, to 
behave how Jesus conducted himself. And, and, and because we're not supposed to be independent, we're not supposed to be our, by ourselves as a church, as a sort of John and John, the Baptist lone ranger in the, in, in the wilderness sort of person. That's not what the Lord has told us to do. We're, we're supposed to have each other like this and 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 use each other's gifts and so discipleship really is is one helping another as far as they have come to bring them to a place where they can look more like jesus act more like jesus right with also having the unique presentation of jesus through through a unique individual that is unlike anybody else and so it's very relational in nature but why do i bring this up because there are different ways to do it, right? You have Ray Comfort, who I, I'm very thankful for. <clears throat> he he casts a lot of seed, right? Or Billy Graham, he had um, they had erected stages in order to have these well, tremendous crusades. Or you have other methods. You have evangelism online. I guess you know through TikTok and stuff like that. And I, 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 um, I think it, it it can be of some benefit, right? But here's the problem that we're faced with is in those cases, and that's not to say I'm not talking down on them, but there comes a point to where as a single individual, as you seek to evangelize, at some point, other people have to be raised up in order to assist you in that work. So if my only intention is to cast seed and my intention is not to bring anybody to maturity, to raise people, then I as one person will have a cap out point. I will have a limit to where I cannot realistically be able to help people and continue to evangelize others as well, right? And so this is not what Jesus did. He did not immediately go out and began evangelizing. What did he do? He selected people. He selected a handful. First of all, they had to come and follow him. And so the the process of discipleship already began the moment they said, I'm turning my back on the world, the apostles, and I'm going to follow Jesus. What did he tell Andrew? What did he tell Philip? What did he tell Bartholomew, what did he tell uh, John, James, Peter, Judas? He said, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. And and this, this word follow is discipleship orientated. Because the word of a rabbi in those times when he said to follow him, a rabbi, it meant that you're in close relationship with the person. That's why when someone said, Lord, I will follow where you, wherever you go, he says, fox have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. In other words, I'm willing to get intimate and personal with you in a relationship as I learn from you. Okay? And that, that's, that's precisely what they did in the first century. <clears throat> that was how their culture was. And so this is the way that the master had set up his evangelistic purposes is he didn't immediately go to the masses 
He prayed all night before he selected his disciples. Did you know that? He prayed all night. So even in our selection of people and who, those to whom we commit our hearts to, our resources, our time should be uh, burst in prayer, right? Because there's going to be a lot of swine that do not deserve your pearls, okay? And then there, there may be people that are not swines, right? They're genuinely good people. They're genuinely good Christians, but they're not on the same mission as you, or they're, they're just not ready yet, right? And so Jesus selects his disciples because, and we'll get to it later, but number one is men were his method. If there was a method to Jesus, it wasn't a program. It wasn't a crusade. Um, he, he certainly had times where he, in, in the case of the Beatitudes, where he preached to the masses, right? He ministered to the masses, but <clears throat> it wasn't a program. It wasn't a course. It wasn't any of those things that served as his method. His method was investing in rugged old men. People who were considered uneducated. They had no degrees. Like Ravenhill said, if, if they do, they're frozen. <laughs> Yeah, I hope you guys get that. The, the point the point is that normally seminary degrees causes you to lose your fire for God and degrees involve a thermometer, right? And the thermometer gauges whether something's frozen or hot. So if you have seminary degrees, it freezes you. Come on, you guys got to laugh. <laughs> Don't make it hard on me. <laughs> That's the Christian dry humor. Um, but in, in all seriousness, he, he <clears throat> men were his, his, uh, human, humans made in the image of God was his primary method, okay? his investment. Number two is that these people, they had a receptivity in order, in other words, their hearts were open. These people who, two of them were already zealots, right? James and John. So they had a zeal for God. They knew about the Torah. They knew about the law of God. Some were already previously acquainted with John the Baptist's uh, revivalist preaching, right? When he was reviving the whole nation of God unto the Lord. The reason why we know this is because he, he carried the mantle of Elijah, and that's precisely what Elijah did in the Old Testament. So they were they were longing for more. They were not content where with what was called the aristocracy. In other words, the elite of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees with their dead formal religion. They wanted more. In fact, they were eager for the Messiah. How do we know this? Nathaniel says, could this be the Messiah? Or or I, I forgot who it was, but when when one had originally followed the Lord, and I believe he went to go tell Nathaniel. He says, "Look, could this be the Messiah?" And and then Nathaniel came, and uh, and then when Nathaniel came, Jesus says, "Nathaniel, a true Israelite in whom there is no guile." He says, 
how do you know me, Lord? He says, I saw you when you're under the tree. So they were eagerly in expectation for the Messiah. So what point is that to make? It's to make that these people had open hearts and they were willing to learn. So in our selection, in our commitment of particular people, why do we want to involve ourselves with people? Because our heart of evangelism, we should pass on to another so that where we are not, they can be. And where we cannot go, they can go. We want to be able to transmit the same, and now by the, and I'm assuming by the grace of God and by the help of the Holy Spirit and through constant discipling of other people, we can help. I heard it said that the, some things are not taught, they are caught. What, the, what that means is that sometimes things go over people's heads and they have to spend enough time with you in order for them to say, ah, I get it now. Or I see. And so as we are reach, it's kind of like Nehemiah. He had a sword in his hand and he had a hammer in his other hand. What does that mean? We, we're building and fighting, building and fighting. We're building up those that are closest to us and we're fighting the devil or we're winning the lost, right? So there's this dual um, task that every Christian should be doing. They should be exercising their gifts, right? Building up their fellow brothers and sisters. Meanwhile, keeping their doctrine close, like Paul told Timothy, that you may save yourself and your hearers and, and engaging in spiritual warfare. Like this, is a, this is a never-ending cycle. It continues and continues until the day we go to be with the Lord. <clears throat> it never stops, it never ceases. But the Bible says that they were ignorant. So what does that tell us about Jesus' election? Now, the, excuse me, let me rephrase it. They were ignorant according to the world standards. So what that tells me is that people, that the Lord can use people like you and I. We don't have any fancy degrees or not that I know of any of anyone in this group that has any. Um, not that there's anything necessarily bad with those things. We don't come from some ruling class. We were not living, you know, um, rich lives among the elite with all the poor people down at our feet, feasting upon our crumbs, you know. We are average people. At least, I mean, I think of myself as an average person. I don't know about you guys. Hopefully that's not a, a, as an insult to, to you. Um, but I take it that we're average people come from different backgrounds, of course, but the Lord wants to work with people like that. Paul tells the Corinthian church, he says, consider your calling brother, that many of you, according to the world standards, were not noble, were not wise, but God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. See, that's how you know you're a Christian is you can be called a fool by God and, and rejoice in it, <laughs> right? <laughs> Isn't that a blessing? Like, do, do you realize, like, how many things the Lord actually says about us and we receive it readily? 
Why? Because that shows that we're his sheep. And we're 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 airheaded sometimes. And and that doesn't make us any less of a Christian. That's why we need a shepherd. The sheep go astray. That's the nature of a sheep. Our security doesn't rest upon the the, the strength of ourselves, but rather on the, the faithfulness of the shepherd. Right? And I'm I'm very thankful for that. And he carries us on his shoulders when we go away. And he leaves the 99. And uh, that's that's deep. It really is. <clears throat> but number three is he, he concentrated on a few. The Lord didn't give all his time to everybody. Though he, though he ministered to the masses, he had selected them. And there's a reason for this. And and I'm 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 going I'm revealing basically the reasoning behind this. Why is it important? Well, it's important because for example, suppose you have you you know you're doing let's say you're speaking before a crowd of 2000 whether that happens ever or not, you never mind that. But the instruction that you give to 2,000 people will not be as effective as it otherwise would have been if there were but three people, right? Three people that you can answer questions. You can allow them to vent. They can voice their hurts or why it doesn't make sense to them and so this is why rather than selecting so many people jesus had confined his his ultimate commitment and engagement with 12 with 12 and then even within that 12 he had given further dedication to a committed three and I wanted to, I want us, this is a, this, at this point, I wanted us to read our Bibles. If we can open up to Mark chapter 5, we can open up, you know what, if, um, yeah, 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 Mark chapter 5. Excuse me. <coughs> Verse 3. Wait, so hold on. I think it might be Matthew. No, I'm sorry. Go to Luke chapter 8. My apologies. Verse 51. Luke chapter 8, verse 51. And the word of the Lord reads, And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John 
and James and the father and the mother of the child. Why wasn't the other 12 there? Well, these men were pillars of the church. You notice Bartholomew, Philip, none of them ever wrote letters. Only Peter, only James, and John. Um, yeah, so the point that I'm making here is that the Lord, in order to effectively be able to disciple others, there was a there was a selection that he had. There was a there was a select few. And and this don't don't lose sight of evangelism because this ultimately is connected to evangelism. Because remember later he says, I have given you authority. He says, Go preach in this town two by two. He says if they don't accept your testimony, keep on moving, right? But that wasn't at first. He he didn't do that at first. He instructed them. Then if you go to Mark chapter 9, verse 2. Mark chapter 9, verse 2, it says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to him Elijah with Moses, and they were talking about Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And so notice, they were able to see the things that the the 70 disciples didn't get to see. Well, the masses certainly didn't get to see, the 5,000. Or the 70, or as... uh, 70 or 72, um, and then the rest of the 12 didn't get to see. So this also shows that there are layers to to the depths of Christ that others are not willing to travel along with you. Um, And no amount of persuading, no amount of presentation or showing them the, the, the benefits of going further in God will convince them otherwise. And I think sometimes it's because of a lack of fervor or zeal or, but other times it's, uh, um, they're lacking in the capacity given by God to do so. And, and the Lord has ordained it in such a way that, um, people like Peter and James and John had done more. In fact, Paul had done more than them all. Uh, he says, I labored more than all the apostles. And so there are some people that had capacity, you know, further capacity than others. And Paul says, yet not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Right. He, so he didn't ultimately attribute any of that success to himself. He says, it was the grace of God working through me. You know, God forbid that Paul should boast within himself. Right. <clears throat> but then I want us to read one other one. Other one. 
Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verse 37. Matthew 26, verse 37. It says, And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Notice how Peter's always mentioned first, too. No matter what book we're reading in, whether it's Mark or whether it's Matthew or whether it's Luke, he was also always the first to speak up. But he was the first to speak on the day of Pentecost as well. But, um, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cut pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See the hours at hand. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. So look at the amount of trust that Jesus had for these three men, that he would take them to the garden of Gethsemane, which means olive press or olive crush, right? So Jesus is being crushed in here. And then we get further inside in, from the writer of Hebrews, into the nature of Jesus's prayer it says he and the days of his flesh he offered up strong crying with tears from him who was able to save him from death this is precisely his prayer he says if, if there's any other way for this to pass for me so it, it, he says but nevertheless not my will but your will be done so his prayer his soul is crying out may this cup of death pass from me and that's what the writer of Hebrews says of, of the description of Jesus's prayer, right? But at the end of the day, even he himself said, not what I will, but what the Father wills to be done. <clears throat> so this is a very, a very agonizing time for the Lord. And, and I believe in the gospel of Luke, it says, and being in agony, he prayed all the more earnestly. So he entrusts a select few to be able to witness such horrific time and i don't know about you guys but in my experiences even though you are not the one going through the agony for those that you love you bear a sense of their agony too when you see them go through it you you feel weighed down now if you are a careless person that didn't care about people and some stranger said uh i'm going through a hard time you're not going to care very much. But if you're a loving person and you fulfill the law of Christ by bearing the burdens of others and those who you love express their their pain to you and they do it because they trust you and, and it's a sense of intimacy, then you feel weighed down. 
right? The Bible says, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. And so that's when, you know, you're walking in love. You're, the love of God is being expressed through you. But Jesus, he, he doesn't allow everybody. And, and it's for a reason, because sometimes um, people cannot go where you are going in the Lord. Right. It's dark. It's away from society. I don't know what month this was around, but it's probably cold, maybe. Jesus is distressed because he's just betrayed by someone that he loved for three years. They're plotting against him. He's about to suffer an excruciating death. He's going through um, agony. The, the gospel of Luke records that his uh, drops were his, uh, his, his sweat was his drops of blood. But the point, though, is that in each and every one of these cases and, and, and the, the, the passage that I, um, the first passage when he had taken them to Jairus's daughter, right, to heal her. They were the only ones to be able to witness that miracle, the Mount Transfiguration. Um, there were other instances, too including the Garden of Gethsemane, in which only Peter, James, and John get to see. And that's because the level of discipleship they needed was at a deeper level because it was needed for the tasks that they were to carry on afterward. Right? And so number four is, although the Lord is discipling them, what is, what is he training them to do? He's training them to cast out demons. He's training them to go into people's homes and pray with the sick. He's training them to pray, even though in agony, right? This was at least a minimum of three hours. So he's, he's raising up prayerful soldiers. He's raising up people that can carry that task when he is to go and be away. When he dies, ascend, uh, rises again and ascends and leaves and departs from this world, right? It wasn't the will of the Father to, to snatch them out of this world. It was the will of the Father to leave them there. You read John chapter 17, you see very clearly, it says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you keep them in the world. You keep them in the, by your sovereign power, keep them in holiness as they abide in this world so that they can be an extension of what Jesus longed to see. See, and I've said this before, I don't, I don't believe in the rapture. Um, I believe this is our permanent residence and it's going to be recreated for many different reasons. But regardless, um, I know that there's some people that have the rapture view that don't allow it to get to their mentality. Because a lot of people, they just want to get out of here. They just want to be sucked up out <laughs> and and like good riddance everybody and basically they kind of have uh and forgive me if this is uh maybe too too they have a to hell with you sort of mentality to the world they just want to leave and that's not what jesus wanted he says your kingdom come your will be done. So we have work to do. 
And and if someone does believe in the rapture, if you don't allow it to get to your mentality in the sense that you just want to get sucked up out of here and you don't want to station yourself. And and don't get me wrong, there's a sense in which we long to be with Christ, as Paul says, but it's more needful that I remain, as Paul said to the church at Philippi, that fruit may increase on their account. It's more needful for them. Right? Look at Paul, man. I can't say that I ever prayed. Uh, you know, it's crazy. <laughs> oh, it was amazing. Because as I was praying earlier, and I was just groaning, and I was praying, Lord, I couldn't help but think, and I know this from uh, many preachers reference him. His, his name is John Knox. He says, give me Scotland or I die. <laughs> but I felt like a similar passion. Lord, give me Europe. <laughs> give me Europe or I die. <laughs> but um, Paul Paul was at a whole nother level when he said, I, I could wish myself accursed and cut off from Christ for my own kinsmen according to the flesh in Romans and so evangelism was the heart of Paul too <clears throat> but so they longed to make a difference in this life to compel those who are in the highways and the byways to come into the feast as Jesus had commissioned his servants, in one of the parables, he says, compel them to come in. And when they came in, he says, there's still room. Go and drive others in, drive more in. There's still room. In other words, uh, they had gone to the Jews, right? Because at first they had gone to a select few, they, to those to whom it was, it was originally ready, which was referring to the Jews. They said, no, I got to go marry. I got to go do this. I got to do that. And he says, all right, go, go to the poor, go to the bums, go to the lame, go to them, and then compel them to come in. And they came in. And so that, that implied there was a harvest. But he says, hey, there's still more room. What does that mean? The, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And you cannot raise up, see, you cannot raise up laborers by a program. You cannot raise up laborers by reading a book. You can't raise up laborers by watching a YouTube video. You have to be able to learn from one who has gone before in the context of a relationship. And and when, when time comes that souls get saved through your witness, and they begin asking you questions, you will further understand the importance of what, of how significant it is for the one who gets saved. And then they begin to look to you as a baby begins to look to its mother for milk. And, and that's why it's so important. It has to be personal. And they, they need someone to rely on when they're weak. And because you have gone before, they still have questions that are unanswered. And through these processes, they see, oh, this is how they did it. This is how they did it. And it is no way to elevate the person as someone that replaces God. God forbid. But this is the way that God ordained it. 
We are co-laborers with Christ. That's what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> and so, but in addition to all this, number four is that meanwhile, even though Jesus was building up those that he grafted in and, and allowed them to see the personal areas of his life, he was not neglecting the masses. Look at Mark chapter 6, verse 30. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. So there is so much ministerial there's so much ministry activity that they could not even eat because there were so many people that were thronging to them. There were so many people that wanted Jesus' attention, wanted the apostles' attention. John chapter 3, verse 26. Wait, is that it? No, I'm sorry. John chapter 6, verse 15. John chapter 6, verse 15. And it says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So look at... People People don't try to make you king because they hate you. <laughs> people are not trying to make you king because you showed them hatred toward their children, to their family. No, what, what's happening is he's healing the sick. He's showing compassion for the lost. And so he's gaining favor from among the people. So there are so many people that perceived the love that he had for them that they're actually willing to make him king. Now, now obviously, they, they end up um, crucifying him, right? And that's that's how you see that the flesh profits nothing. It, it lasts but a while. They were not truly regenerate. Because in one moment, they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the next moment, they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. <clears throat> but the point, though, was this, that he didn't neglect the masses. He didn't neglect public evangelism right so it's not discipleship and and forget about evangelism and it's not evangelism exclude about discipling people all right sister god bless you let's uh read one more Uh, chapter 12 verse 9 
When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. <clears throat> so once again, there's, there's popularity that he has gained. Right, because of his love for the masses and his, his engagement of the masses, his activity, his service to the masses. And so let me go over this once again. Number one, his, his method were men. Number two, they were men willing to learn. Number three, among those that were willing to learn, he concentrated on a few. And though he concentrated on a few to disciple them, he ultimately did not neglect the masses. He still gave himself to public evangelism and those that he were not he was not specifically concentrated on and you know the the handful that he was selected on in his day-to-day life. Um and number 5 is the reasoning for why he had committed to a select few. Now I have here a couple of thoughts. Though he did what he could to help the multitudes, he had to devote himself primarily to a few men rather than the masses so that the masses could at at least be saved. What What good would it have been to arouse the masses to follow him if these people had no subsequent supervision or instruction in the way? They needed competent ministers that could help protect them in the truth and mature them. So as he's, you know, as he's discipling a select few, he's making them ready for the time when those that would be grafted in, the, the, the masses that needed care, that needed instruction, that needed help that needed prayer or needed this or needed that. There were many other men who were already trained at his disposal, at his disposal, who could have assisted him. So that when he left, those masses were not unattended. Those flocks were not, were not unattended. They had, Men who spent three years with Christ, learned his way, learned his doctrine, had um, benefited from his covering and benefited from his um, high priestly prayers, who had benefited from his shepherding and protection and security and re- and had um, received revelations and, and insights to parables and mysteries of the kingdom of God. <clears throat> These men had to have been exposed to a lot in order to secure them and sustain them, empower them, and ready them for all the people. And so what those what those men would then do is they would uh, duplicate the process. Then they would concentrate on a few, raise up more, and then ready them and mature them for the masses. And then those people would then select a few. And so it just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing. So that if you take 12 men and you concentrate on all of them, and then you raise up 12, and and each 12 raises up 12, how many do you have? 
you have 144, right? And then what and you just, and then if that 144 takes each, uh, takes 12 men each that they focus in on, then it multiplies into the thousands. And then it multiplies into the tens of thousands. And so this is the effective strategy that Jesus had committed to. This was the effective strategy that the Lord had fostered instead of merely giving himself to crusades or uh, just speaking one-on-one and then allowing them to just go their own way, right? So it's casting seed, but when children are born from that seed, we raise them up, we train them, we mature them, right? we make sure that they enter into adulthood and and not have become an aborted baby, right? Or a, a stillborn child, right? Um, or a, a baby that has been neglected and, and left to him, him or herself. And so this is, this is the importance of why um, we need to evangelize, but, also disciple in light of accomplishing evangelism. <clears throat> and so I hope that uh, uh, that concludes what I'm going to 